What's up, everybody? Welcome back to University of Adversity. I'm your host, Lance Isios. Today's episode, we have Nick Motika joining us today. Nick is a former police officer with over 17 years of experience in the force, and he shares his personal journey, shedding light on mental health struggles that often go unnoticed in this crazy and demanding profession. Nick opens up about his own personal experiences with accessing psychological services and the toll that the constant exposure to difficult and traumatic situations can have on individuals, which we often don't see. We explore the daily pressures faced by a police officer, the lack of downtime, and everything else that goes with it. We also dive into his transformational healing journey, which started as a a diagnosis with post-traumatic stress disorder, also known as PTSD, which led him down to an unconventional path of self-discovery and personal growth. We dive into his journey with psilocybin magic mushrooms and the transformational experience that unfolded from that. You don't want to miss this story. This is so powerful, you guys. You know, we unpack the life, what it's like to be a police officer first. Nick was really transparent about his life. He worked, you know, very closely in um, drug enforcement and that world. And we just got to see a peek behind the curtain of what it was like. And then we transitioned into talking about, you know, his healing journey. And now his path as an entrepreneur, starting a conscious clothing company called Flow State Designs, which is incredible. We dive into all of it. So you don't want to miss this because we, you know, throughout the whole episode, we cover a lot of important topics. So if you want to know what is possible, if you are somebody that's sitting out there thinking that you're stuck in a career that you you hate or that doesn't feel aligned or you want to change your life, but you feel you don't know how or you, or you just can't because you're you're scared to lose benefits or you're scared to lose that security. Listen to this episode right till the end or share it with somebody that needs it because these are the th- because this is the tool that you could use and others could use to help change that perspective because Nick has shown that it's possible. And that's why I love this story so much is because it shows possibility in changing your life and what can be possible when you actually do the work. So this is a really great episode, and uh, I really enjoyed recording it. So enjoy The Invisible Battle, a police officer's journey through mental health and healing with Nick Motika. Life is going to give you challenges, struggles. It's going to force you to face your fears. Even though these may feel like your worst enemy, in truth, these are actually your greatest allies. My name is Lance Isios. Welcome to the University of Adversity. Nick, welcome to the show, my man. So good to have you here. Thank you very much for having me. I... uh I've obviously been looking forward to this conversation. We'd have a couple of conversations um, at a different time. And, you know, we're in such a unique place in the world right now. And I really admired your story and kind of how your transformation has happened and is really inspiring. 
you know, from being uh, a police officer for 17 years and then now being able to, you know, really change paths and create something that's more alignment for yourself and, and the world moving forward. So I, um, where, where I'd like to start with this is first of all, what was attractive about getting into the police force in the first place? Like, why was that? Why was that the choice? And let's, let's speak to that a little bit. I'd love to hear more about that journey. For sure. So it started out as a desire to help people and want to be, want to be there in people's, you know, moment of need. And then to add into that, my, my father was a police officer with the RCMP as well. So no doubt that had a huge influence on me growing up in that world and um, some more recent reflection and my, uh, my Oracle, my, my wife, uh, she pointed out here about a little over a year ago that uh, I chose my career from my wounded inner child. And so what that means is that as a child, I wasn't seen and heard and maybe loved in the ways that I would have chosen and certainly no judgment to my parents. They were doing the best that they could with what they knew at the time. And um, unfortunately they were repeating patterns that they had experienced as children themselves. And so I, yeah, didn't feel seen or heard. And so getting into policing, putting on that uniform, strapping on that gun, doing all those things was a way to be seen and heard not only by my parents, but by, I guess, society at large as well. So I certainly wouldn't recommend choosing your profession from your wounded inner child, but that's, that's kind of my story. So combination of things. So yeah, dad in the police force, that wounded inner child piece we just talked about. And then also that desire to help people. And, um, and then one more thing was I, I naturally have, uh, an attraction to, you know, a little more adrenaline focused activities. So driving fast, skiing fast, motorcycles, that sort of thing. So policing definitely satisfied that need to, uh, to get my adrenaline hit. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's a great point you brought up about choosing something from your wounded child. Now, w- would you say that most people do that? It's kind of the way it's, would you say g- growing up? I mean, when we're choosing a profession, especially when we're a young adult, I mean, wouldn't you say that it's kind of what our parents project onto us in a way and like sure. how 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 healthy is that actual that projection onto us and it's and and makes me think like how many people are making these choices for their career or even even like a partnership for life based on those wounds yeah absolutely and it's just it's an impossible decision to make especially at that point in your life like you're still a developing human yourself and yeah you're put in this position where okay you're done high school choose what you're going to do for the rest of your life like it's it's kind of it's impossible like you in that moment to make the right choice that's going to grow with you and that you're not going to come out of alignment with is is kind of a a huge ask that so many people um don't don't end up in the career that's ideally suited for them because of those outside influences from parents from society at large all of those things so it it that choice very rarely gets made for what actually feels good and what 
is going to be your your true calling. Mm. How was working in that as a police officer? Did it did it harden you? Because it's something I wanted to do too. I was very interested in the the idea of like helping people, right? And obviously you are too. But like I noticed a lot of lot of police officers were very angry and there was just a lot of i mean you're dealing with a lot of the scum of the of of society and people shit on them and they don't and they give them a hard time and not and it's hard because they get grouped into this bucket and i'm just curious like how did that affect you over the years like did it did it chip away at you did it did it bring that kind of hardness did it did it harden you and did you bring that home with you I think yes, for sure. And it's something that I think happens to all officers as they kind of progress in their career. And so for me, it's, I've come to realize that it's every situation that you go into as a police officer is bad energy, right? It's so right from day one. So I remember coming out of training thinking like, all right, I'm going to go out there and like help people and then start working and quickly realize that, Oh, most people aren't happy to see me at all. (laughs) Number one. And then the deception of people in general, and it's human nature, right? Everyone's trying to protect themselves and minimize their involvement or their, you know, role in whatever situation it was. So they're, you know, not telling you the truth um, right from the get go. So that goes from the old lady who just blew a stop sign right in front of you, who you pull over and you come up to the window. It's like, hi, like, you know what? I pulled you over today. And they're like, like, no, no, I have no idea. And then you're like, well, yeah, you've rolled right through that stop sign. They're like, nope, no, I didn't. I came to complete stop. It's like, no, no, you didn't. And so that deception was really hard for me personally um, to, because now all of a sudden you're, that's what you're doing. Every shift, every call is you're sorting through the lies. So the victim in a lot of cases will not tell you the whole truth again for to self-protect and minimize their role the the guy or girl that is the perpetrator or the bad guy they're of course lying to you because they're trying to minimize their involvement and protect themselves so you're left sorting through just this soup of lies trying to find what's the truth somewhere in the middle and that's the energy of, of everything you go to and then just to add into that so when you walk up to that window or walk into that call that reaction is never or very rarely a positive thing, right? People get their guard up and it's like, Oh no, what the fuck does this guy want? Like that sort of energy at that window of the car or at the call. And so over time you pull over however many cars in a day and you're met with that energy at the window, right? That like, you know, mad and frustrated and like, what the hell does this guy want? And like all of that. And over time that just chips away at, at you. And it definitely did me to the point where when you come up to the window, you're already, you know, bracing for that energy. And so you're feeding it back to the person. And then it just starts this negative loop of bad energy both ways. And so that not to give guys and girls excuses, like police officers for that attitude, you know, but that's where it comes from. And it isn't something that you come out of training with. It's something that you develop as it's like a self-protection mechanism and it, it definitely does harden you. And then just to 
um, I guess answer your, your last point. And that's if you bring that, if I brought that home with me and I think for sure I did, um, I tried of course, to, to minimize that and to separate myself from the job because at the end of the day, that's all it is, right? It's a job. It certainly wasn't my whole life or my whole identity. And so trying to separate yourself from it is, is difficult to say the least because yeah, you go and deal with some pretty rough things on some days and then you're expected to come home and roll in and uh, be the best version of yourself as a parent, as a husband, as a friend, as a son, daughter, whatever it is. And it's, uh, it's not always easy for sure. And I'm guessing you don't get a lot of support in that when you're seeing so much darkness and so much negativity. Do you get any, is there many resources for you to, to unpack things or like, I, I'm sure you get a little bit of therapy or something, but what is that like for, for people that, I mean, you're seeing accidents, you're on the response to, I don't know, shootings or, or crime or drugs and all of this. And it's, you're, you're only a human. Like you can only, like you're a human being just because you're a police officer doesn't make you not human. So you have to see this stuff and then you're expected to like, you know, just carry on and go home and be this like normal loving human being. And it just, it, it blows my mind sometimes thinking about it because it would be so difficult and from my perspective and, 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 you know, just what you're saying that, you know, you can't really turn it off. So what kind of resources do they have for, for, for police officers going through that stuff? Yeah. So it's definitely, I would say trending in the right direction, even yeah. from when I started in kind of that 2006 is when I sort of, when I graduated from depot and started in policing. So until now it's definitely going in the right direction in terms of those resources being available and it being more socially acceptable within policing to access the, you know, psych services is what they call it with Calgary police. Um, so there is there is support out there, but as the individual officer, it's really on you to reach out and access those. Mm. And so it's just, unfortunately, you're, you end up, you're going to, from call to call to call and it's so busy and just with the way society is, it's, there's no downtime. So it's basically like you go from one hard call, let's say whatever it is, a, an accident or a crash where someone's seriously injured or killed. And then it's like, once you're done the paper on that, then it's like on to the next one. And it just keeps going like that Man. shift after shift year after year. And unless there's something that really stands out to you or like an exceptionally hard call, they will do kind of a debrief on the situation, but more times or more often than not. And this has been my experience. I can't say for sure what's happening currently. Cause I've been sort of on the, out of the front lines for about, about three years now, but it's uh the debrief is more focused on like tactics and what you could have done better or what could have been improved officer safety wise or whatever else it's it's not focused on like how are you feeling like are you are you doing okay are you right. able to pro- like that's not generally the focus in in my experience so it's um it's something that that I didn't 
access in my career, those psych services help or that psych services help until very more recently, I guess. And I was about 15 years into my career before I started to uh, reach out and, and access those services. And as I did that and started to admit that things weren't right with me in terms of it was first my sleep that I noticed was was not good anymore. I was working in a unit where we would work for 12 hour night shifts in a row. And I wasn't able to sleep more than a couple, three hours in between my night shifts anymore. And so as you can imagine, over the course of four of those, it just compounded. And by the end of it, I was a mess. I wasn't able, I wasn't good at work. I wasn't good at home. It would take me two days after my set was over to even feel kind of human again. And so um, that's where I reached out first was for help with my sleep. And then that led to me admitting other things weren't quite right with me in terms of my mental health and my career quickly, the layers of it just started falling away once I started admitting that I needed those, that help. How long were you in the force before you decided to get into like, cause you started to get into the drug. What's that title called? Like what's the exact unit called and how, why did you choose that? Sure. Yeah. Walk so, us through that. Cause I think a lot of people are interested in, in this kind of thing. And, and it, I think it's a good place for us to kind of talk about moving to the next thing after. Yeah, for sure. So I started in the RCMP. So I went to depot in Regina. That's where all Mounties are are born, they call it the cradle of the force. So uh, out of depot, I got posted to uh, Sherwood Park, Alberta. So this is, I'll just give you a quick story. And this is basically the Mounties summed up in one story. So I asked for small, right? So you get you get to submit where, where you wanna go with the RCMP. And so I asked for small places and I actually wanted to be somewhere where there was a reserve in the policing area. Uh, and my rationale for that was I was young at the time and single, and I thought I might as well go somewhere undesirable. I, I yeah, I mean it's undesirable to me yeah. as a as a young single guy. Yeah. Um, to get that out of the way, so then I can get to a better place once I have the the girl and the wife and the yeah. kids and all the things, right? And so I asked for those places and then they gave me Sherwood Park, which is like huge and right next to a big city and no reserve anywhere around there. So it's like it's like this mind games they almost play with you and the guys and girls in my troop that asked for big metropolitan areas close to a hub. They got the small with the reserve. So it's like they're wow. like a psychological thing right from right from the get go. So. Anyways, worked out really well for me. Reverse psychology, I guess. I didn't have any uh, insight into that at the time. But Sherwood Park is well. awesome too for everybody that's listening. It's like one of the best suburb, suburbs outside Edmonton. Like it's awesome. For sure. Yeah. Super desirable place to live. Yeah. Lots going on there. Really quite a nice community actually. Yeah. Um, so I got there and was quickly overwhelmed by the, the case load basically. So we would get... Uh, about as an individual officer, you go to like between 10 and 15 calls in a shift and there's paperwork involved in all of those calls and investigations and different things. 
So you're being asked in the RCMP to be a first responder and an investigator, which you can't do both. <laughs> you wow. can't do either job properly because you, you can't be ready to go to that next hot call while you're interviewing a, you know, a guy or a girl for a, you know, a fraud investigation or whatever. So you're trying to like do both, but you're not doing either well. So these files just started stacking up on each other. And at one point I had 120 open investigational files where I had things to do. Meanwhile, I'm getting 15 more every shift I'm working. So I was just getting buried and and I'm the kind of person that I am a bit of a perfectionist again, going back to my childhood reasons for that. And um, so these things just stacked up and I was getting really stressed out and like not, I hold myself to really high standard. And so that was, it wasn't good for me to be working on the, in the front lines at that point, because I, I needed to be dedicated and doing a good job at, at whatever I'm doing. And I just didn't feel like I was doing that in frontline policing. So about two years into my career, I was, uh, because of performance or they saw something in me or whatever, I was given an opportunity to work in a crime reduction unit. So that was me and another guy. And we were now focused on some bigger investigations. So like a string of break and enters would come in that were related. That would be our file. So we would do the investigation on that and write search warrants and execute search warrants and interview suspects and do all the things. And so that was a much better role for me because now I can really like sink my teeth into whatever that job was and that investigation. So I really enjoyed that. So then I was in that for about a year and then got kind of recruited into, into a drug unit. So in Sherwood Park, it was myself, two other constables and a corporal. So there's four of us and it's, it's called exactly that. It was just called the Sherwood Park drug unit. And so now we're specifically looking for drug trafficking and the, you know, guys that are actually and girls that are actually putting out this these bad things into the world and, and selling it to people for commercial gain. And so that role was again, something that I enjoyed because it was, we could sink our teeth into one investigation at a time and wrap it up, search warrants and interviews and all the things wrap up all the paperwork. And then it was on to the next one. So that's kind of where my drug enforcement career started. That was about three years into my career. So and then about, yeah, and then at that point, I had met my my now wife and mother of my three amazing children. And so um, I had to start thinking about someone else and their career and all of that. Because in the RCMP, we're, it's Canada-wide, right? So when you, uh, when you join the, the RCMP, you sign on the dotted line and it's you're willing to serve anywhere in Canada. So you're going to get transferred and in the RCMP, it changes. But at that point, it was about five or six years before you were looking at a physical transfer. So to another town, potentially another province, but probably within the same province. So my my girlfriend at the time was like, you should look at moving to a municipal police force. So either Calgary or Edmonton. And I thought, that's the dumbest idea I ever heard. It's like, I'm giving up all this stuff. And as I'll detail later in our conversation, she's my oracle and uh, she's usually always right. And so it just takes me a minute to catch up with her and realize that 
she's onto something. So sat with that suggestion for a couple of days and then started thinking about it. I'm like, okay, well, let's, let's, let's write out a pros and cons list and see what this actually looks like. So we did that pros were like this cons were like this. And then a lot of the cons ended up not even being cons. It was like pension stuff and whatnot that ended up working out. So um, at that point I was in drug unit and thought, all right, let's move to Calgary. And then we're, we're in a major center and there's no transfers. Now we're, we're there for as long as we want to be, and we can live in a, the home that we want to live in and the area we want to live in and not have to worry about transfers. So I applied with Calgary and ended up getting accepted. It was quite a quick process. And within yeah, a couple of months of that initial conversation i was working downtown calgary um in yeah in uniform again as a first responder so the big difference between municipal forces especially a bigger one like calgary to the rcmp is as as a first responder that's more it's more of a specific role there's investigators that deal with the bigger stuff that comes in and you're basically just running around as a first responder putting out fires you're not really investigating anything you're not really solving anything. You're just documenting crime and then again, putting out fires and then moving on to the next call. So <clears throat> I did that again for about two years. And then um, after about two years, I was like, okay, this again is, you know, all these calls are coming in and it's not really my my personal favorite. I, I like more of the investigations. And so at that point I applied for a, uh, a spot within the district in district one, it's called downtown Calgary. <clears throat> kind of like that crime reduction unit again but uh, just a bigger version of that being in a bigger place and i wasn't even considered for it because um i never wrote enough tickets <laughs> in when i was in uniform i uh, my philosophy was always like i'll write a ticket when it's like called for when if someone causes yeah. a crash or you know it's like really bad or something i'll for i'll write a ticket but I'm not going to write the little old lady a ticket just to get my, in the RCMP, it was, we had to get 10 a month. Ah, uh, that's the, there's true. Ah, okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I might get in trouble <laughs> for saying this, but there's for sure a quota. And in my opinion is total bullshit. So yeah. And then got to Calgary and it was 20 a month. And so I never got my 20 ever. And almost like on purpose, I was like, no, I don't, I'm not going to do that because it's, I mean, it's a revenue generator for government and I'm not into that. I'm into like enforcing laws and using my discretion and actually trying to like help people in a sense of like, yeah, keeping the road safer and all the things. So yeah. anyways, never got my 20. So I wasn't even considered for that spot. Um, it was like a career. It hindered my career by not getting those, those tickets. Wow. Um, so I, um, that was within the district. So then I applied for the drug unit in Calgary, which is the drug undercover street team. So it's an undercover role within, in drug work within the city of Calgary. And so that's outside of the district. It's like a specialty unit, they call it. And so the fact that I didn't get my 20 tickets didn't hinder me. <laughs> So because I had previous experience with the Mounties in, in the drug work or in the drug world, I ended up getting a spot. It was a competition like interviews and there was a psych assessment and a bunch of things we had to do to get into that role, being that it was an undercover role. Hmm. So I ended up getting that spot about two years into my Calgary time with Calgary. 
So got into that unit and thought, well, this is great. Like I enjoyed drug investigations with the RCMP. Now I'm with Calgary. Now I can continue that. So the difference, of course, is that there was that undercover aspect with now this this job in Calgary. And so it was uh, a whole new thing and had to go through an intense training program, of course, to learn how to operate is what we call it. And uh, it again, going back to what I talked about initially is that deception energy of policing. So now I'm that my job is to deceive people, right? To trick them into selling me drugs. Like no one should sell drugs to a cop, right? That's like drug dealing 101. Yeah. Uh, but now that's my job is to, to trick people into doing that. So that's the energy of, of it is just always that like underground and tricking and lying and all wow. the things. And so I didn't enjoy that. Not surprisingly looking now from with some hindsight, uh, but it, yeah, it wasn't something I excelled in. Like I didn't enjoy it. I, I did it and it was exciting for sure. And like th there was moments of it, like when you'd make a big buy and you'd be, there'd be adrenaline involved, of course. And um, it'd be exciting, but my best day in that unit was when I didn't have to do anything like in terms yeah. of uh, buys or, or search warrants or whatever. So this is uh, another sign that you're not in the right job. And so for me, my best days in policing were training. So when I didn't have to do my job yeah, and also when nothing would happen. So either there's no calls or uh, in an investigational unit when there's we're doing surveillance and the target doesn't roll. So mm. we watch his house all day and he doesn't leave. It's like, that's, that was, those are my best days in policing. So pretty strong yeah. sign that you're in the wrong job when your best day doing that job is when you don't have to do your job. Uh, but anyways, yeah, wow. so I just pushed through and, um, I had a, had a, just the worst boss I've ever had in policing in that unit specifically. So I was more worried about what my Sergeant was going to yell at me about after the buy then i was worried about the drug dealer that i'm <clears throat> getting into the car with wow. so that's a, that's a bad headspace to be in right, right. um so i really started noticing at that point even driving into work i would feel just this tension come into my jaw and i would just feel terrible mm -hmm. but i didn't see an out right i saw I've signed up for this job. I have X number of years left until I can retire and it's paying the bills and I have benefits and all the things. And I just, just didn't see an out. So I just pushed through. So that was kind of my experience in, in the drug world. And it's, it's funny now to look back. And so most people in those roles, like my fellow, my coworkers, it was like takedown days were always really like the, the highlight. Those were the worst days for me. So I almost had to like fake being excited about takedown day. Cause I knew it was going to be, oh, and I have to arrest someone. I'll have to interview guys. And it's like all this uh, paperwork yeah. and search warrants and just a whole bunch of stuff and everyone else is high-fiving and like excited. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is great. Thanks guys. <laughs> and yeah. so, um, that was kind of my experience in that drug world. And then 
pushed through that for about two and a half years. And that role really, I had a hard time not bringing that one home. And in the, like my overall mood, cause I wasn't happy doing the job. And so I wasn't happy at home either. And then, excuse me, the timing of it as well. We had just had our first, our first born or our first son in March of um, would have been 2013, <clears throat> excuse me. And I started in that role. My undercover course was in May of 2013. So my little guy was like, yeah, three months old. So wow. a whole bunch of new things happening at home with being a father for the first time. And then also navigating this undercover world and I'm growing a beard, you know, and I'm not allowed to be in family photos and social media is like a big no, no. So there's yeah, two and a half year wow period in my life where there's like no photos of me because if that ended up on social media you never know who sees that right, right? and then connects it back and so uh it was just a very it was just yeah not a very good time in my professional life or my personal life my wife told me after i got out of that unit that if i would have stayed it would have likely ended our marriage actually right. so that was that was really well, super hard to hear and also really eye-opening that, holy shit, yeah, this has really affected me and I'm not doing a good job of not bringing this home. So um, at that point, I knew that this, I wasn't enjoying it. And so I found a spot in what was called the gang suppression team. So I moved from very covert, you know, undercover role into the exact opposite. So I was back in uniform and then it wasn't even a regular uniform. It was, it had bright, um, deckling or whatever you want to call it on the back of our shirts. And it said gang suppression on the back. So it was like even more in your face than even a normal police uniform. And so it went from that covert to the complete opposite wow. overt world. And, um, that role, I actually did quite enjoy and i'll just tell you briefly why i think that is so for me i was having come from that drug world you end up doing or spending a lot of time in court with prosecutions and charges and you have to testify a lot because there's um for serious drug offenses trafficking and whatnot there's what's called mandatory minimum sentences so there's really no point for a guy or girl that's arrested and charged with those offenses, not to fight it. So everyone goes to court and hires the big fancy lawyer and tries to get themselves out of it. And so spent a lot of time in court. And so I saw from the inside how horribly broken our justice system is yeah and just how how frustrating that was so internally in policing it's you know all that negativity and the deception and and all the all the things you're sorting through and then you put someone into the court system and they're beating you down on that side too because you didn't you know cross a t or dot an i or even things that are completely out of your control like how long it takes to get someone in before you know a trial if it takes more than two years the supreme court of canada has laid out hard deadlines that if it takes more than two years then the charges get withdrawn so now charges are getting withdrawn from like really bad people because of backlogs in the system and so the system was beating me down i wasn't happy internally so in this gang suppression team we were able to i feel like 
actually make bars in Calgary safer with the work we were doing. And we didn't have to put these people through the justice system right. um, because it was a is provincial legislation that allowed us as police officers to remove members of organized crime from licensed premises. So what that means is we go in, we find a gang member in a bar we that's our job is to know who these guys and girls are so remove them from a bar and now all of a sudden everyone else in that bar is now safer because if the wrong person comes in and sees said gang member in bar there's going to be violence like it's just how that world works Mm -hmm. and they're everyone else in that bar is not safe right because stray bullets and all the other ugly parts of of real violence and so by having them removed from that high density you know populated bar now everyone else is safer so i felt for the first time in a long time like i was actually doing something to make people safer or to help people yeah not get hurt and so i found value in that work and then um the schedule and whatnot just worked better for for my family and i and was able to enjoy my time off because it was once i was done my job it was like i was good like i could go home and just be nick again so i i really enjoyed that part of it and so um and of course, as I alluded to, that unit eventually led to my my sleep getting all messed up, though. Yeah. Combined with all the unresolved traumas that I'd collected throughout my career, right, going back to my early days in the RCMP, that I just pushed down, right? The the hard calls, the the really troubling situations and things that you see as a police officer, I would just, anytime I'd be reminded of it with a smell, with a location, with a sound, whatever it was, it would come up and you'd be like, no, not, not today. And just push it back down. That's, that's what I did. That was my coping strategy for 15 years to that point. And it came to a point where it just wasn't working for me anymore. And that first thing that identified was my sleep. Mm. Oh man, there's so much there to unpack. Um, so from the sounds of it, you you really kind of you develop this sense that this wasn't for you for a long time. And it's interesting because I'm sure so many people feel that, but what they start to do is they mask it with drugs and alcohol in their own lives, right? Addictions, because it's like, shut up, shut up. I'll just numb myself, numb myself, right? You create this this uh further separation from yourself and feeling what needs to be felt. And it's interesting you bring up the the gang unit because I worked in nightclubs and bars in Vancouver around around that time. And I remember even before that, before 2013, like before the Olympics even, they had the bar squad or the whatever it was, I forget. But like all the bartenders were pissed because then all the drug dealers weren't giving us we weren't making as much money because they would come in and just like throw money at us, right? But it was safer it was a lot safer. It was, it was, uh, it, it, they just all got pushed out to the suburbs and it was good because you, you went into a place and you, you've, it's important because you want to go out and eat and you want to just be able to like enjoy your life. And you don't want to have all these like gangsters that like, you know, you they got a vibe to them. Right. And they, they just, right. As you know, and that's great. That's great because you could see tangible evidence that you're doing something and making it safer which is like, you know, very, very important with there's shootings going on and all of that. I guess my next question for you, 
is out of all out of the 17 years as a police officer is there anything that stands out as like one of the most challenging moments that you've ever experienced that really rocked you that like when you sit back and you look at back at your life you're like oh man that was a that was a doozy and if you can yeah. share that that would be great because i think a lot of people kind of want to know those kind of those kind of things yeah for sure so there's a few for sure um over the course of of a career the, you go to a lot of things and and it's what st- stands out to me it would be different from any other officer right so um going back right to the beginning it was uh initially it was a number of suicides actually that were the really hard ones for me and i don't know exactly why that was for me but mm-hmm. it was it was just something those ones really stuck with me and I, I never i don't i think it's because i couldn't wrap my head around it and like the reasons maybe why the person did that to themselves and just and then in a lot of situations the location and the way they did it their the family found their body and it's just like it's just such a horrible horrible thing for everyone involved so those those suicides were were hard for me and um the first one it was and that when i say like reminded by a smell it's like so for me it's uh Shmirnoff green apple vodka that fake green apple smell so uh the this girl had drank a bunch of sh- green apple vodka to you know get herself ready to kill herself and uh, what she did is she sliced both her wrists the like along the artery, and then uh, she was in a basement suite. And so when we got there, uh, she came to the door because it was a it was EMS, so the ambulance had called for backup, right? So it was a medical call. But then I, I don't know who ended up calling it, but they wait for us as the police. We go in, we secure it, make sure it's safe, and then bring in the the ambulance people to do their thing. So this girl answered the door and she had both her arms slit and she answered the door and was just like, ah, and like blood was shooting out of both of her wrists. And then she, she opened the door, saw who it was and then ran into her suite in the basement and started like smashing every piece of glass in the place. So go down and we're trying to get her secured so we can get the ambulance in to or get the medics in to bandage her up. And so there's broken glass everywhere and it's winter and she's wearing a, a down parka that she has the sleeves rolled up on. And so end up getting her on the ground with the help of my partner and I'm on this girl's legs and she's just like a maybe late teens, early twenties. And I'm, I'm not huge, but I'm like in uniform, especially I'm, probably over 200 pounds and I'm laying on her legs and she's like lifting me up, like no problem. Just this unreal strength, which was wild with how much blood she'd lost at that point. And so we're able to get her somewhat secured medics come in and they start trying to bandage her up and they need to get this down jacket off. So they had to cut, cut this down jacket off. So there's blood everywhere, broken glass and now feathers everywhere and so that one for me so they got her bandaged up 
and off in the ambulance and took her off to the hospital. And so my coping strategy at that point was to like, not ever think about that again. So I never even looked into whether she ended up dying or not. I still, to this day, don't even know if, if she did die or not. Uh, but that was, that was my first one. And then there was a string of them just like really unique ways that people find to kill themselves. Uh, it yeah. was, it was just it, it was it was hard to deal with and then the the real the really tough one for me was the um there was a homicide in calgary in it was around 2015 ish i want to say and it was the it was a triple homicide so it was the grandparents were murdered and um i believe he was about five or six years old nathan o'brien and um, so it was this Douglas Garland came in and killed the grandparents because of like a bad business deal. And then the, the their grandson happened to be staying with them. And so he killed him as well. And so I was part a very small part of that investigation. Um, I was in drugs at that point in dust. So undercover and they had us come in and, and search the house because we searched a lot of houses doing drug warrants and whatnot so they had us come in and and search that house and so i spent a lot of hours in at the the scene and like i can still picture his his little shoes sitting by the back door and so yeah that was a hard one for sure um so anyway so those those were and then to add in that was like right after my son was born so like adding in the like the human element of like now i'm a dad and i'm like yeah struggling with how to how to you know move forward like how to wrap your head around something that tragic and so that that was that was a really hard one so those yeah those were kind of the the ones that really stood out to me in the ones that i never processed i just pushed those down anytime those memories would come up and that served its purpose it got me through uh yeah 15 years up until the point where that didn't serve me anymore. And I had, I had a full break breakthrough at work. Um, in the moment, it definitely felt like a breakdown and from the outside, it looked like a breakdown, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Oh man. Yeah. It's heavy stuff. So, all right, let's, let's move into kind of modern day and you know, your path. So, you had a big transformation. You obviously knew that by this point you weren't aligned with the profession anymore. Now the trucker convoy happened. You made a viral video and a lot of things kind of unraveled and things were rebirthed from that. Take us back, speak to us about that time during this crazy COVID pandemic time from 2020 to now. And like, I guess, walk us through a bit of the journey about how it unfolded and how you felt about it and why, what, what was out of alignment and what led you to making that video? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So early 2020, so we're talking January, uh, my wife and I made some big changes in our lives and that was a big diet change. We did a gut reset And so, um, and at the same time we started meditating for the first time. And then for me, I had rediscovered cannabis around that time. And so those three things 
early in 2020 really led to the acceleration of my um my journey for sure my healing journey so that's that's right when i admitted that my sleep was messed up so got help for that and what that looked like was going to my family doctor and telling him what was going on and not knowing what that was going to lead to. And what that ended up being for me was a, a doctor's note that said I couldn't work past midnight, which in policing is kind of a career suicide thing, right? Because it's a 24 seven profession and it really limits you. But at that point I was just like, this isn't working for me. I don't feel good. I'm going to put this note in and whatever happens is kind of out of my control at this point. And so that led to the end of my time in gang suppression. And so now we're into, you know, March, April of 2020. So things are really ramping up in terms of lockdowns and all the things that were happening at that time. And so I got moved into a unit called the public affairs and media relations unit. So it was on a laptop, from home, I was like the social media officer for the service, me and another another fellow officer. So we would answer questions on Twitter and Facebook and all the social media platforms for the service. So that was great. At that point, I was able to start working on my sleep, getting back into a normal cycle and working from home Tuesday to Friday was the first time I had more of a desk job in policing. Everything else had been a lot more frontline oriented. And so I thought I had it made. It was it was good. And then June, late June of 2020 is uh, when George Floyd was murdered in the States. And all of a sudden, my cushy online gig became not so good. The, the online world during that summer of 2020 with the defund the police and all the things. And then just the, you know, people, what they say online compared to what they would say to someone's face. It was just a really dark, dark time through that summer. I pushed through it. I knew that it wasn't, I didn't, and I wasn't enjoying it, but I didn't really have any insight into what was going on. And then September 16th, 2020, opened my laptop one morning and there was a bunch of messages um, that had come in through Facebook over the course of the night from this young lady who I'd been previously messaging with and was trying to help her find her missing mom. And it was a cry for help. It was a, she was suicidal and she was asking for help through these messages. And for the first time in my life, I wasn't able to act. I my world just came crashing in on me. I went into like this catatonic kind of state where I couldn't do anything. I like I, my cop brain was going and I like knew the things that I needed to be doing, getting a call for service generated to check on her welfare to to make sure that she was still okay because these messages had come in hours before because they're not monitored overnight. I knew that that's what I needed to do, but I couldn't do it. I was just like, I was having a full on breakthrough <laughs> breakdown um, at, in that moment. And so I'm staring at my computer screen. I don't know how long I was in that state for my wife came into the room and saw me and knew that something was up and she kind of snapped me out of it and asked obviously what was going on. And I didn't have an answer for her cause I had no idea what was happening with me, but I knew that I needed to well call my supervisor number one. And number two is to, take some time and figure out what, what was going on with me. So I called my supervisor and she answered the phone. So it was a civilian um, supervisor, civilian member of the Calgary police service. And she answered the phone and I 
broke down. I cried for the first time as an adult. I wasn't able to explain to her what was going on. Of course, I wasn't, I had no idea what was happening to me at that point, but it was for me, it was my cup just filled up. Like all those traumas, all those hard calls, I'd been pushing them down, pushing them down successfully for a lot of years. And it just, in that moment, it just filled up and that wasn't going to work anymore. And so I knew that I needed to, um, to take some time and, and get some actual help and actually deal with these traumas that I'd been pushing down for so long. So she, uh, she gave me the day off. So that was nice. And, uh, so I went out to the mountains, actually, I drove out to Elbow Falls, West of Calgary, and I sat on the banks of the Elbow River and I journaled and wrote about what was important to me and what <clears throat> the priorities of what, in what, they should be in my life and not what made sense from the outside, the career and the car and the house and all the things, but what actually made sense to me. And I just knew that I needed to not go back to work until I got help for all of these unresolved traumas. And I needed to just surrender and let whatever help was coming in come in and so i vowed in that moment to to do exactly that and i um i went down a path of a very unknown path of healing that started with you know a lot of paperwork and filling out forms for wcb and for insurance companies and all this other stuff and telling people my story like internally for hr reasons and whatnot and i was just like exactly that i was an open book i was whoever wanted to hear my story, I was willing to tell them in the hopes that someone could, could help me. And so I got hooked up with different psychologists and started going to sessions with them and uh, went through a couple of them before I found one that I was a little more aligned with. And for me, what I was looking for was not only that psychological help, but also something with a spiritual element. Cause at this point I'd been going through kind of a quick spiritual awakening since that early January of 2020 until this point we were now in September of 2020. So about nine months later. And so that spiritual side was really missing from traditional therapies for me. So I found a, a girl who was a little bit open to it. A psychologist who was a little bit open to it, maybe not to the level that I was wanting, but I would take it at that point. So seeing her regularly doing exposure therapies, the eye movement stuff, um, all the traditional talk therapies that that they were offering i was like yeah let's do it let's try it and i was working at it as hard as i could and just hoping that something could get me back to myself and so what i really found was in addition to my sleep um i was also really affected like in terms of my patients with my kids i i wasn't the dad that i knew i could be i wasn't the husband i knew i could be the friend the all the things i just wasn't myself I, I was closed off and irritable and no patience and just yeah not in a good place and so um was trying to uh figure out how to actually process these traumas and so that led it was about a year and a half of just trying these therapies but not getting back to myself knowing that there was something out there for me that was actually going to help me but not knowing what that was going to be so 
pushed through about a year and a half in WCB put me in this, uh, they call it the return to work program. And that was their only goal was to return me to work. So I was with an OT two times a week and a psychologist two times a week. So it was four appointments a week. This is like a, a full-time job in a sense, um, trying to work through this stuff. And they were pushing me to return to work. And that was their obvious goal. And they ended up traumatizing me more than probably anything that actually happened to me on the job. Really? And that, oh, it was awful. So that program lasted for, from September till December. And then in December, it was like the end of the program and they were pushing me hard. WCB was pushing me hard. And I knew that I was in no position to return to work. I was not in a good place at all mentally. And so with my back up against the wall, my, uh, my Oracle, my wife again, had told me about, uh, she said to me a few months prior that what I needed was a shaman who was also a psychologist. And so I, again, like I do so silly, so silly, so silly of me, but I, uh, yeah, don't maybe listen to her at the time. And then I think a couple months later that I came up with this brilliant idea. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, yeah, realized that I needed a shaman psychologist. So I Googled it and I found a lady who was actually in Calgary, who is a PhD psychologist and also uh, a shaman. So I called her up in that moment and spoke to her and she wasn't in a position to take me on at that point. She was too busy teaching and doing other things. So I was thinking like, what the hell am I going to do next? And so a couple of days went by and she ended up calling me back and was like, I have gotten clear guidance that I need to help you. So we made it happen. So she was able to write a letter to WCB and back them off and the Calgary police. So back them off from pushing me so hard to return to work to give me this time to actually process this stuff. So what that looked like for me was on January 28th, 2022. So it was my wife and I's 10 year wedding anniversary. We traveled to Calgary. We weren't living in Calgary at this point. And we had a healing journey. And what that looked like for me was, was psilocybin. So magic mushrooms. I knew that whatever was going to help me was it was going to be nature. I wasn't interested in any sort of a pharmaceutical or anything chemically altered or anything like that. It was nature. And so a few months prior, I just had this intuitive knowing that I needed to uh, start growing my own mushrooms. So that's what I did. I, uh, I grew, grew these things and I, I grew them on a sacred geometry clearing plate and I did Reiki on them regularly and not knowing what I was going to do with them exactly. But again, just knowing that I needed to grow these things. So I did that. And so I had these mushrooms that I'd grown with the intention to heal me in a sense, to help me get over this, these traumas that I was that were keeping me stuck in a way. And so I, um, yeah, we had a healing ceremony with those mushrooms and there was drumming involved and calling in of protection. She staged the place and there was, it was just like this beautiful ceremony with like really intentional. And then I'd written out my intentions three times or written out my intentions in my journal. So I held the medicine because it's a hundred percent of medicine, magic mushrooms, psilocybin is medicine. I held it to my heart. I read my intentions three times forcefully and I consumed them. 
And they did exactly what I asked them to do. And that was to effectively process these traumas that I had never actually processed. So I was able to go without even thinking about it, without any resistance, I was able to go back to that very first trauma that I just told you about the the girl who had cut both her wrists. I was able to go back to that scene for the first time willingly and actually relive it, experience it in a sense. And my first big realization was that number one, it wasn't even my trauma. I was a witness to her trauma story that had culminated with that day. And so that was big for me to realize, okay, I'm, I'm holding on to this trauma that actually, yeah, it's not even mine, right? I'm just a witness to it. And then the second part was this radical, the only way I can describe it is radical Jesus level compassion for her and what crazy trauma she must have had that led her to that moment and also compassion for myself in the sense that I started doing this job to try and help people. So those three things just allowed it to process. I wasn't pushing it down. I wasn't giving it energy by, by pushing it down. It just processed. And then I was able to just move again without thinking about it or resisting or doing anything just chronologically moved on to the next one and did that same process through it on to the next one, on to the next one. There was about five of them for me throughout my career and just went through that. And a couple hours later, I came out, had a bath and just sat with, with my wife and this psychologist and we just chatted and it wasn't like a, it's not like a switch went off and it was like, Oh, I'm good now. Like that's, that's not how it works. It had taken so many years to you know, culminate and deteriorate to that point where it was affecting me in my day-to-day life, that it took some time to, uh, to I guess, unpack that and to integrate that healing that I had experienced. So before that journey, uh, she's a psychologist, so she'd done all the testing on me and I was PTSD diagnosis and on the severe side is what she told me. And then, so that was where I was at January 28th, 2022. So, um, and then fast forward about six weeks later, WCB, of course, had no idea what I was doing. Like I had to pay for this session myself. Like I was doing it all on my own. Like it's not something that's approved through WCB. It was just something that I knew I needed to do. So six weeks later, WCB tests me independent psychologist and it was a half day interviews, all the testing. And she called me back a week later and told me that I didn't even meet the criteria for a diagnosis. So I went from severe PTSD, one healing journey to, to no diagnosis. And for me, the only way I can explain that is that I was so open and so ready and willing to do that work, to go in and actually process those traumas that that's why it was so effective for me. And then also, I think there's a huge portion in the energy that I put into those mushrooms with the sacred geometry, with the Reiki, with the intention to heal myself. It was just, there's just no other way to describe it um, other than, well, magical. But um, that was a huge part of it a part of it and why it was so effective for me was, was that strong intention and willingness to just go in and do that work. So I'll just back up to actually answer your question. So in the meantime, so I'm off from September 16th, 2020. So we're hard lockdown. No, there's no vaccinations or anything at this point. So 
I was on the fence. I didn't know what I was going to do in terms of vaccination or anything like that. I was going to wait and see what happened. It became very obvious to me very early as it was for so many people that the only solution that they were going to offer was a vaccine. And for me, it just didn't didn't make sense to me that the survival of the human race was going to be dependent on uh, untested, brand new medical intervention. So I had that in my head. And then as it rolled out and they started pushing it so hard with lotteries, with all the coercion and everything that we saw, it was like, that's the exact opposite way to get me to do something personally is you push and I will back up. <laughs> and so that's when I really started being like, wait a second, like this just doesn't make sense. And then obviously saw the vaccine passports roll out. And so I'm now my, me and my family are, are not choosing to get that. We made our own decisions and now I'm being restricted. I wasn't allowed. I couldn't take my kid to a hockey game. It was just, it was just wild to me. And now we're, we're revealing medical information to the, you know, the hostess at the restaurant to the the security guy at the hockey game, like our status and all that. And it just felt horrible to me. And the biggest thing for me was throughout my whole career, and I have a degree in justice studies. So before policing, I, I did get a four-year degree and it was hammered into me right from day one that the charter, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms is the supreme law of the land and people's rights are important. And when you breach someone's charter rights, there's remedies. And in the criminal system, that means that charges get withdrawn. If you breach someone's rights, like there's remedies. Those things are super important. People's rights are paramount. And now all of a sudden that was like out the window. And then, so now fast forward to January of 2022, the convoy's on its way to Ottawa. I, for the first time in a very long time, felt an immense amount of hope seeing all the people on those bridges supporting the, the, the convoy as they were making their way to Ottawa. I was feeling really good. And so that was that was the energy of January 28th. My healing journey was when that was happening. So and then so that healing journey happened. And then about a week later, the convoys in Ottawa. Now things are really ramping up there in terms of enforcement. We're seeing members of probably the Ottawa Police Service stealing fuel from the truckers. They called it seizing, but that in my mind, there's no there's no law to be lawfully seizing this fuel. Like they're stealing fuel now. It's winter, it's miserable there. They're taking this fuel and making it impossible for these truckers to stay warm while they're peacefully protesting these mandates and whatnot. And so that was what was happening at that point. So we're about a week post healing journey. I'm feeling really good. Now the energy in Ottawa is getting quite dark. And um, it was about February 7th, I want to say. That was the day that I saw some news stories about the fuel being stolen from the truckers. And I was, it was laying in bed one night or that night and I started writing in my journal. So I wrote a two-page entry and it was called um what the heck what did i call it part of history and i wrote this letter basically to other police officers to really question what 
they were doing in terms of trampling people's charter rights by enforcing these the mandates and everything that we were seeing happen in Ottawa with the, how they were trying to quash the protests. So I wrote this letter in my journal and I thought, I'm just going to record it record myself reading it. So I sat down at my desk, recorded it on my phone, me just reading it. And then after I was done recording, I thought, you know what, I'm just, I'm going to post it to this group that I'm a part of. And it was police on guard is what it was called. So it was uh, a group of other police officers and correctional workers and um, military people that were feeling the same way that I was, that was just like really questioning what was going on. So I posted it to that group and went to bed and I didn't really think anything of it. I wasn't naive in the sense to think that there wasn't a possibility that it would be shared outside that group, but I didn't really give it much thought. So I went to bed and I woke up the next morning and it had been shared outside the group and had taken on a life of its own. And so that was a crazy day. Um, Just the amount of, so it ended up touching people and not just police officers, because that was who my intended audience was for that message, but it ended up touching a lot of people. And I think it was because they saw the humanity of, of a police officer who's not going along with just what the government and what all the media and everyone is, is saying just someone actually like questioning this, what was going on. And so a lot of people I think resonated with that message and I received a ton of positive support, like overwhelmingly positive support. And, um, the, the negativity, of course, there was some, uh, came from, well, the Calgary police service, they weren't very happy about my video because I did identify myself as a police officer in the video. So I got, I got a couple of phone calls that next day from, um, HR with Calgary police service. And then I later got a registered letter ordering me not to, not to speak. And so that felt terrible too, by the way. Um, And so I had a completely unblemished record in policing. I've never, I've never been in any sort of trouble. My integrity and the way I handled myself, I was always like super conscious of, of my my behavior and my words and all the things. And so I had an unblemished record up to that point. And now um, I was subject subject to uh, an investigation, like an internal affairs investigation into this, the video that I made. And so this HR lady who called me, which is another thing that I, I didn't really love from the Calgary police services. They didn't even have an actual officer call me another fellow officer. They had a civilian do it, which was kind of low in my opinion. Uh, but so she called me, she's like, so, um, yeah, we're gonna need you to take that video down. And I'm like, I don't think you understand how this works. Like this video is out there. Like I didn't post it. Number one, it's been shared like on YouTube and rumble and all these other places where I'm not getting it back. Like this is just, that's not possible. And I won't even try because I just spoke my truth. I didn't say anything that I disagree with or that I feel should be taken down. And so she's like, okay, well, yeah, go ahead and just try to take that down. And uh, um, that was kind of the end of the conversation. And so, yeah, that was, that was kind of how that all unfolded. So you, do you think the guidance came from the medicine for that? There's no coincidences, of course. Like, yeah. I mean, the healing journey happens on my 10-year wedding anniversary, right as the convoy is heading to Ottawa with all that hope and the just the the love and the 
peace and all of the things that came with that movement. And then, yeah, for a week later to that, to just write that and then to feel like I should record it and then to post it like hundred percent. Yeah. There's, there's no doubt. So how did the, how did flow state design start your clothing company? Like how did that get birthed from that moment? So, um, right early again, right to the beginning of the story. So January of 2022 or 2020, sorry, is when that the spiritual kind of awakening started happening with the meditation, with the diet change, and then with cannabis. And so early in that, um, that January period during a meditation, actually, I just had this idea for what ended up becoming flow state designs. And it was born out of my own personal struggle to find what I was looking for in the market. And that was a locally made natural fiber, just good fitting quality, cool, basic men's t-shirt. I couldn't find it. I could find some companies that would, you know, it'd be really cool product, but it'd be polyester and it's made in Bangladesh or find one that's, it's a Canadian company, but it's designed in Canada, but still manufactured in Vietnam. So anyways, I couldn't find one that checked all those boxes. So I just decided in that moment to just make it myself. And so I started down that road while I was still a police officer. So I applied to have an outside business interest or whatever it was called and started taking the steps to have what was in my head made in physical form. And that took, it took several years, actually. I had no idea what I was doing, of course. I'd never worked in any sort of a fashion role. I was in enforcement my entire life. So I had to figure out every step of the way. And so that was all happening while my career was falling away, while the pieces of my former life were just peeling away. And then through my whole healing journey of trying to to process those traumas, it was something that I was building in the background while that whole journey was happening. And then once, once I got word that I didn't have a diagnosis anymore, my benefits stopped that day, right? Like my WCB benefits and Calgary police were calling me saying like, all right, you're good. Like when are you coming back to work? And I made the only decision that was possible for me and that was to resign from policing and that was for well for my mental health because i'm feeling really good and doing really good um post healing journey but if i were to go back into that energy and back into those situations i'm just going to re-traumatize myself and i'm not going to do that to myself or my family and then also i just have so many issues with what's happened with policing in terms of political influence on policing operations and policing, you know, tactics uh, with what we saw in Ottawa with the Emergencies Act and how they dealt with the protests there. Like that's clear political influence on the police, which is just wrong on so many levels. And I'm not going to be part of that. I'm my integrity is number one. And when something is out of alignment for me, especially now at this point in my life, I'm just I'm not. I'm not going to participate. And so made that decision to resign. And of course I was really fortunate to have an amazing wife who is super supportive of me making that decision. And then also her family have, have been amazing in terms of supporting us and giving us a place to live while we were going through all this 
and to just it was un, unbelievable support that I got from from my my family and so I couldn't have made that decision without them but it was again the only decision that uh, that made sense for me and that felt good to me you know what I love about this bro is that like you're the evidence of like that you've shown from going and having having this intuitive pull to get like this this feeling that something's not aligned you know you're 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 suppressing trauma you're suppressing all this and then you 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 set an intention you grow mushrooms with the intention to heal the mushrooms heal your body and then you step up to this the plate and it's like the mushrooms guided you through that and it's just such a beautiful experience now to just to show people that what is possible and now being able to step into something that means something to you at a deeper level at a heart level you know like creating clothes that are consciously made and and there's integrity behind it and it's much needed and it just has like it's just so great to show that journey because a lot of people they they get so stuck in this is the career I chose. This is the benefits I get. This is the security. That's it. That's, that's it. And, and to hear your story about you were listening to the whispers and you know, they became louder. And then it was like the, it was like the pandemic was like an opportunity for like reevaluation and then to give yourself that space and just to be able to transform like that, man, it's like, it's really a testament of what's possible. Uh, and and I guess I wanted to ask you this earlier. I know we're kind of going over time, but that's all right. Um, what does healing feel like to you? Because some people, you know, they they hear that word healing or they hear transformation. And um, but some can't wrap their head around what that actually means. What does that feel like to you? Yeah, for me, it's it's freedom. So it just feels like I'm not being affected by something external, whether that's a memory or a trauma or whatever it is. It's just it holds no emotional charge over me anymore, because whenever you're whenever you're reminded of a trauma and you have that urge to push it back down you're giving it energy and what you resist persists. Of course, we all, we all know these things, uh, but you're giving it, you're putting your energy into it and you're giving it energy by forcefully pushing it down. So whereas now, like I can talk about Nathan O'Brien and of course it's traumatic and it's super emotional, but it's not like, it's just not the same. It doesn't feel the same as it used to, where I would just be like, I would have never told you that story before my healing journey. Right. Cause it was just too, it was too raw and unprocessed. Whereas now it's, it's a memory. Like it's not a good memory of course, but it's just a memory with no emotional weight or charge to it. Like, uh, yeah. It, yeah, if that makes any sense. So um, that to me is what, what healing feels like. And then it's just, it's like coming home to yourself and just because you're not affected by those external things, it's like, you're able to just be, be yourself and, and who you're supposed to be. Hmm. What do you, what advice do you have for somebody that may be in a conflict with themselves like you were? And they may not be in law enforcement, but they may be doing something that is out of alignment. 
they've listened to podcasts, they've resonated with people and transformation, but they don't know how to take the first step. They don't know what that's going to do. What, what, what advice do you have for them? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's certainly not easy. And and those pieces that you all mentioned, the security of it and, and all of that, it's, it's, it's difficult for sure. But I would say that just take a small step, whatever it is. Like if it's a, if it's a business idea that you have or a venture that you're interested in is just start taking small steps in that direction and don't quit your job, like right off the hop, like do it, you know, in small steps. And it's amazing that when you start taking those, you know, that first step and then the next step becomes obvious to you and you take it, it just starts growing and it becomes all of a sudden you're at a point where you're like, wow, I've actually really come a long way and not without even really realizing it. So that would be my, my, my biggest thing would just be just to start like whatever that first small thing is for me with flow state. It was, it was buying the domain name. Actually, it was the first time I, I paid any money out, you know, and it was like, I remember that moment of like sitting there with the, to check out to buy that domain. And I was like, all right, here we go. Like Good this, feeling. Is real, this is real money. Now I'm like really doing yeah. this. And that was a huge step that I've been able to reflect on. And then, yeah, remember what that felt like and just keeps me moving forward in a, in a positive way. Mm, that's a great point. Cause I think a lot of people get wrapped up in like having to have all the answers figured out, especially in the entrepreneurial journey, man. It's so easy to get caught up in, Oh, well, how is this going to work out? And this going to work out and this going to work out. And even when writing a book, when I wrote a book, I was like, well, that's, how's that even going to happen? You know? And, and it's amazing. Like you just said, you take that first thing, that first step. And then it's like the next step opens up and you're like, Oh, I didn't even think about that. And then a person pops up yeah. and then, and then, uh, an opportunity comes. And it's like, it's, it's, it's amazing. But if you don't trust that to just take the first step, it's like you get lost in this chaos of what ifs and then they aren't even true most of the time. Totally. Totally. And then it's just, once you start showing yourself that you're listening to those, those internal knowings and the nudges and the, all the guidance and all that stuff. Once you've taken that step in the real world, it starts to strengthen, right? Because you're now showing and proving that you're listening and you're hearing what's coming in. And so it's, it's like a muscle that you have to, you know, strengthen. And Mm. for me in, in my life, I'd been ignoring that intuition my entire career. Like, just think about the energy of, you know, getting into a drug dealer's car to buy an ounce of meth. Like, your intuition's probably screaming at you, like, don't get in that car. But then I forced myself, pushed through that, and forced myself into that car. And so I'd been ignoring my intuition for so many years. The, in addition to the freedom of what, what I feel now post healing all the trauma is just like that. This feels really good to be listening to myself and not putting myself in situations that I know aren't to my benefit. Dude, you're so blessed to get out of that without something terrible happening. Like you see these movies of these, these cops and you know, they, get into their, you know, they infiltrate the gangs and it's like, they make it all exciting, but it's like, all it takes is one bad, one thing to happen. And it's so dangerous. And that stress of that worrying and can manifest in illness and all kinds of shit. So man, I'm I'm so glad that you were able to work that many years and just 
to be able to get out of that and be like, ah, I, I survived it because dude, that's a tough, that's a tough thing to do. It's a tough thing to do. Well yeah. Done. It's, it's, it's wild to think about now from, you know, the outside looking back at my career. And so I worked, yeah, I described my entire career here today. And so I've, I've arrested thousands of people and interacted with, if not tens of thousands of people in different capacities. And I've never been physically harmed in policing. I've never been spit on, kicked, hit, punched, anything. I never had to use a use of force tool in my entire career. Never used my baton, my OC, my firearm, of course, taser. Like I never had to use any of it. The most dynamic thing was like a bit of a wrestling match where someone wouldn't give up their hands or like the the lady I described who um, was trying to, you know, kill herself she was you know wrestling with us or fighting us trying to avoid handcuffs or whatever it was but that was it and it's like in all those interactions for that to be the case is like there's yeah i'm protected in some way for sure energetically or whatever that looks like um there's just no other explanation well i think it's also because of the energy that you put out the fact that the way you you, you talked about the way you did things you did things that were true to you. Like you didn't give people tickets just to be an asshole. Like some people, right? Like I'm sure that that's the integrity you brought in your job and people can feel that too. Right? Like you meet nice cops and you meet assholes just like in any profession. And it doesn't, doesn't surprise me that, that you, you know, that, that you didn't put out that energy to people. So that didn't happen. And I, um, yeah, man, I just, I, really respect your story and what you've been able to do. And, you know, um, thank you so much for coming on and sharing this. I know we got to get your story shared far and wide because it's really powerful. And, you know, I love kind of digging into your, your work as a cop, but then also this transformation is just so important. And I think that it just gives people hope, especially now that it's possible. So thank you for being brave enough to step up to the plate and share this, man. Um, I'm, you know, I know you're going to have many opportunities to do that. So thank you so much. Really. No, thank it. you very much for giving me the platform and the, the time to, to share that because it is so important. Trauma, unresolved trauma is at the root of so many of our problems in today's world. I would suggest probably all of them actually. Yeah. And, uh, these the medicine of psychedelics psilocybin specifically for me has so much potential to help so many people that my number one mission in life right now is to share my story to hopefully inspire people to to take their own healing journey and to to deal with their stuff that's holding them back in their lives and um and then the the consciously made clothing is is kind of a, a bonus on the side um as my side mission but uh sharing my story is number one so thank you very much for giving me that opportunity of course so everybody can just go to your website and it's it, flowstatedesigns.ca I believe right that's right yep and then on all the social media platforms again under flow state designs and uh yeah that's where you find me i highly recommend it you guys i'm wearing one right now and let's just i'm i'm going to plug it hard here because it's hard for a man to find a shirt 
that fits, especially somebody that may have a little midsection gain over the years. It's hard to find something that fits in the arms and the shoulders and makes you look muscular, but then doesn't squeeze your love handles. That's what this shirt feels like to me. And it's got the perfect length, the perfect material and it's hard to find something that's not made in these other countries. So again, that I'm saying that honestly, the shirt is great and I plan on getting more. So you guys make sure you get them too. And dude, thank you so much. Cool. No, I appreciate it. Thank you again. Thanks everybody.